Well, good morning, everyone. Well, we are finishing up a, a series going through Philippians and really looking forward to uh, going through the text this morning. But before we get into there, do want to kind of, uh, just by way of kind of talking through something that will be helpful for us a little bit later on, want to ask a question to all of us. Um, I have things situated up here strategically for a reason, uh, not Mike's, that's, that's not my doing. But uh, have things set up here for a reason, and I want you to take a look. I have uh, this item over here, have a vacuum, and then have my trusty glass of water. Very nice to have, especially in dry weather here, right? And then we also have a nice little fountain going up here. And I think that may be why, Tristan, if, if he's still in here, I think that may be why people are a little more chill and relaxed. Doesn't water just sometimes kind of make you like, ha? Huh. Like you go in and it's just, it's, it's running water. Or maybe some of you are going, it's really hard to concentrate with that noise. But um, yeah, whatever. Uh, my question for you this morning is, of these three items, I want to ask, which one do you most, most relates to you as a person and where you are in life? So we have a vacuum and we can just kind of look at some various different things that the thing does. Obviously, it, it sucks and it's effective at that. Um, very useful for things like that. So is this something that you can relate to in your life? Think about that for just a moment. Or maybe a glass of water. Is a glass of water something that more relates to you as a person? Something that you can take a drink of, be refreshed by, refill if necessary. Or maybe this one is more like your life. And we're going to be talking about a passage of scripture, and and I'm going to go ahead and have Mariah uh, Kester go ahead and come on up, and she's going to read for us the text that we're going to be going through this morning, and uh, look closely in the text, and then we're going to talk about the text, and, and then we'll kind of see how it relates to these three items. So it's all you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you, Mariah. 
So we won't be looking at the entire text this morning. We're going to be looking at a section of it, Philippians 4, 10 through 13. And that's primarily where we're going to camp and, and think through. And, and so maybe just by way of, of kind of pulling us in from worship into what we're going to be doing right now and thinking about scripture, I wonder how many of you, as you were singing one of the songs, thought through an aspect of scripture. And, and so as we were singing one of the songs, it was, you take what an enemy intends for evil and you work it for good. And that principles of that are, you can find all throughout the scripture. One that came to mind as, a, as we were singing is Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his good purpose. That all things work for together, work together for good. Not just some, not just a few, not just most, but all things. All things work together for good. So that means if, if, if I've placed my faith in Jesus and, 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 I, and, and because of his sacrifice and trusting in his cross to make me his own and make me righteous before him, this promise is true for you, that he causes all things to work together for good. And so as we sang that song, then I was even caught up in thinking about, wow, wait, even in Old Testament, this was true. I, I look at Joseph. I've been reading through the Old Testament. Joseph, he's, he's, he's out, and he has this great relationship with his brothers, and they love him so much, they decide to play a game. It's called hide-and-seek. They throw him in a well and leave him there for a while and ditch him, and he goes off into Egypt, right? It's a great game. Everybody plays it with their brothers and, and other siblings, right? I hope not. Um, but it's, it's crazy what happens to Joseph. But then in the end, all of a sudden the brothers are getting a little concerned because they're like, oh, great, dad's gone. Now there's nobody between us. And, and I don't know what he's going to do with the power that he now has. He's, he's basically second in command only to, only to Pharaoh himself. He has power. What is he going to do with this? And as they come before him, he looks and he goes, you intended this for evil. But God intended it for good. When we're singing songs, we're not just singing songs and mouthing words, but, but these are grounded in biblical truth. And we would do well to remember those biblical truths. Sing them often and frequently. Remind ourselves of these truths. And Paul's going to be reminding some people of some truths that are important for us today. So as we look through where we're going to be kind of heading this morning, it's this, an idea of contentment. It's all we're going to be talking about this morning. So my goal for us this morning is I'd like for us to have an understanding. How do we define what is contentment? And not just contentment like maybe you've heard it before. I, I, I used to be in high school into drugs and other things like that. And, and one of the things that I always kind of had a thing is because I smoked marijuana. It was like, oh, man, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, let's be honest. That wasn't content. That's called being anesthetized. I didn't care. That was probably a better, a more accurate statement of me on those drugs. I just didn't care. That's not contentment. But what's biblical contentment? And so I have a few different quotes for us to kind of get us thinking about what is this idea of contentment? And then what I'd like to do is offer a, a definition for us that's actually rooted in scripture. And we'll, we'll kind of talk through how do we see that in this passage of what Paul's trying to talk about, about what contentment really is. And I can tell you this, we as a church have to be a people who are content. 
If we're not, it is going to impact us in a variety of different ways. And we'll talk about those as we go through the sermon. So the first quote that I have, uh, the Puritans, uh, they kind of get a bad rap, right? Um, a, lot of, a lot of negative things could be say, said about the Puritans, but one of the things that they did is they did take time to think through a variety of different issues. Man, they thought through, how do we honor God in work? How do we honor God in play? How do we honor God? They thought through so many different issues, and I'm going to present to you two Puritans who kind of gave an idea of what they thought on contentment. And they said, Jeremiah Burroughs says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious, frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So if you look at that definition, you've been looking at it for just a moment, maybe you want to take a picture of it, we'll take a look at the next definition that we have, another, uh, another one of our authors, Thomas Watson, another Puritan. And he said, in a word, contentment, I think you lied there. He's got many words on this one. In a word, Christian, uh, a contented Christian being sweetly captivated under the authority of the word desires to be wholly at God's disposal and is willing to live in that sphere and climate where God has set him. Contentment. So these are people who took time to think through what does it mean to be biblically content and have contentment in my life? My question is, are you content when they describe it this way? Do I struggle with contentment? Well, maybe to give us a definition, my personal definition that we'll try to to go through and unpack this morning as we go through the text. What is contentment? It's a state of satisfaction. We could maybe even use peace, and, and we'll talk about that. It's a state of satisfaction flowing from accurately knowing Jesus Christ that enhances our relationships and that strengthens us with willingness and resolve to remain in whatever situation we face. So we're going to unpack this and try to see, wait a minute, how does scripture actually point us to this reality? And as you look at the definition, I, I, I read it to my wife, and the first one that she looked at, and she was like, okay, well, yeah, but what does it mean that it enhances our relationship? I don't, I don't get how contentment would actually enhance our relationship. So I think that's where we actually need to begin. So as we look through the text, Paul says this, and in, 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 in addressing this group of people, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. When we look at Paul and and him talking, he's going to say, listen, I have learned this idea of contentment. And the first thing that he addresses with this group of people and to kind of catch us up, Paul addresses a group of people known as the Philippians. He spent time with them on missionary journey and, and got to know these people. They then become ministry partners of Paul, sending him out to go out and share the gospel wherever God would lead him. Now, Paul has this moment in in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. He's arrested. Then all of a sudden, he's sent off to Caesarea Maritima and then sent off to Rome. And that's where we find him right now. 
And so they had this business partnership, so to speak. It's, it, it, we would call it a fellowship back in that time where they said, listen, I have resources, you have resources. We'll both come together and we'll try to accomplish something bigger than ourselves. And it's called the gospel spreading. We're going to be about it. And we have some resources we'll share as we're able, and they send them out. And one of the first things that we notice in here is it says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you now at length you have received or you have revived your concern for me. And what we know is going to happen from reading through the text is that Epaphroditus brings a gift to Paul. Now, in this text, the thing that we can also see that he's almost poetic in how he describes this. And he says that now at length you have revived your concern for me. See, there was a period of time where they didn't do anything for Paul. And we would maybe appreciate that right now in this season because what season are we looking forward to right now? Let's be honest. Spring, right? We're really looking forward to spring. In fact, we're almost like rejoicing and celebrating. That's what Paul is talking about. Revive has the idea of blooming. Things coming into bloom. It's an agricultural term. And he said, just as a person looks forward from winter moving into spring, I too have that same joy. And when I receive this gift from you, it's, it's like spring coming. Oh, I love it. And I rejoice. And so one of the things that, that we look at this is Paul's looking at this group of people and he's saying, man, I'm so thankful. But notice how he thanks them. Some, some commentators will look at this and they'll go, wait, this seems like an odd way to thank him because they, he says, I received this thing and I thank God for it, but he doesn't ever really say thank you. But see, there's something unique that's happening with Paul. And, and he says, listen, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. Some people might look at this and go, basically Paul's saying, finally you sent me some, some goods. But maybe to keep them from actually feeling like, oh, goodness gracious, we, we missed the mark and haven't been sending him these gifts, he reassures them and says, listen, I know that you care for me. I know you have concern for me, but you weren't able. Now, what was it that, that they weren't able? What, what was the, the lack of opportunity to do so? We don't know. Maybe it was that Paul was just arrested. Maybe he was in commute going off to Rome and there was no way to send him because he wasn't at a physical location. Maybe things were so bad in prisons, they were like, there's no way. I'm not going to send money over that way because who knows what's going to happen to it. Guards might take it. Or maybe what we also know from 1 Corinthians is that there was actually poverty that hit Macedonia. Maybe when they said we didn't have opportunity, maybe they didn't have means to send support. But either way, Paul's saying, it's, it's okay. You didn't have opportunity. I know you care for me. But then he shares this secret in here where he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. See, the reality of what Paul looks at in this whole interaction is this, that we need to see in contentment. It enhances our relationships how? See, Paul wasn't desperate for this group of people to send something. They sent him a gift. He appreciated it. But where was his hope? I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Paul looks at this whole interaction, this whole exchange, and what does he say? Oh, man, God provided means for you to send this to me. God put this on your heart to send this to me. God mobilized you to send this to me. 
Where is Paul's hope right now and trust? It's not in a group of people. He doesn't need the people in that sense. But he sees God doing something through them and using them to be a part of actually God doing something in his life. See, it actually enhances our relationships because sometimes what I find in relationships is I look at another person and I feel like you either, I need something for you or you owe me something. Right? What does that do to a relationship? It destroys it. Because now all of a sudden there's expectations, expectations that may be met or may not be met. But Paul's going, it's okay. I don't have that need, that same need all my needs. I've learned this idea of being content. I'm content in God. And what does that do? It enhances his relationship with this group of people. When we look at continuing on into this, Aristotle, he was a a great thinker back in the time and, and people would have been familiar with his work. And one of the things that he talks about friendship and, and, and that whole idea of how does it enhance our relationship, he, he proposes this. Friends whose affection is based on utility, something that you can do for me, do not love each other in themselves. In other words, what he's saying is, is if, I, if I have this relationship that, ah, I see that you can get me something, I don't love you. I really don't. And I actually don't really have a friendship with you. I'm using you. You have a good that I can get from you, and I'm going to take it from you. We don't have a friendship. There's not a mutual love that's happening. I'm using you. And so Aristotle looks at this, and he's, he's saying, listen, uh, friends based on utility, that I don't love that person for who they uniquely are and how God has wired them. I don't know that he would go that far. But insofar as some benefit accrues to them from each other, men love their friends for their own good and not as being a person loved, but as useful or agreeable. The other term that he used is, is pleasant. Sometimes I find friends because they're pleasant. I enjoy. We're interested in hobbies. We're interested in sports. We're interested in etc., etc., etc. And what Aristotle says is these are the weakest of all relationships. They're bound to be frustrated. Why? Interests change. I change. But the thing that he started talking to a group of people is, listen, if you have a friendship that is based on something more than that, on virtue, as Paul would say, a gospel partnership, we have something that unites us and that's Christ. He brings us together. There's something spectacular that can happen in that. Now, all of a sudden, I don't use you, but I look to see who is this person that God has put in my life. What are they like? What are their personalities and their their gifting? Not so I can use them, but because I want to encourage and nurture that in their life. See, when I'm content, when I'm not in a place where I need something from you, I can actually love you better. I can actually encourage you better. Second one is that I mentioned in this definition is it's a state of satisfaction. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. Paul's satisfied. He's content in where he is. He's not wanting to change anything. He's at peace. Well, how did he get to this place of peace? He trusts the Lord. He's rejoicing in the Lord. When he's anxious about anything, what is he doing? 
Well, by prayer and thanksgiving, or supplication with thanksgiving, he's making his request known to God. He has a peace that comes from God. He's satisfied. So as he talks to this group of people and he says, listen, you sent me this, this, this gift. I'm so thankful, but I'm okay. Well, why would he say that to a group of people? Back in the same time when, when you would have these partnerships, one of the things that, that was important is that I wasn't just using you, as we just saw in Aristotle. And so Paul's just affirming and saying, listen, we have this partnership that God has brought together, and, and I, I love you guys. Anytime I think of you, I have joy, but let's be honest, I, I, I don't need you in that sense. God is providing for my needs, and he's using you to do it. I'm thankful. I'm thankful to God. He's at a place of satisfaction, at a place of peace. And so this idea of contentment has this this whole idea that Paul's even been building, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, would guard our hearts and our minds. When we think about what's true, when we think about who God is and what he's like, then I have this peace that comes from God. And it's all related to this notion of being content. Contentment, as we mentioned, is a willingness and resolve to remain. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am, I am to be content. Whatever situation, I'm to be content. He's willing to remain in this position. He's not looking for someone to rescue him. He makes known his need, but he trusts God with what's going to happen. He's not squirming and trying to get out from under it. What I find many times in my life, maybe it's the same in yours, is that when pressure hits, when when things maybe start to rise to a place where, where, uh, you know, the the poo in the room hits a a level that you're just like, oh my goodness, it's uncomfortable now. You're like, get me out of here. And what Paul is sharing to a group of people, he's saying, listen, I don't have need I've learned this ability to be content even when the pressure is high. And so he's looking at a group of people and saying there's a willingness. I'm not speaking of being in need. I've learned this ability to be content in whatever situation I'm in. The other idea is that contentment has to be learned. Christians, this has to be learned by you and I. This isn't something that just happens naturally. When we look at, at maybe a quote on this, Plutarch makes, this, uh, makes mention of this. He's another older author, and he says this. He's kind of a moralist back in his day. He said, the owner of five couches goes out looking for ten. The owner of ten tables buys up as many again. And though he let, has land and money and plenty and is not satisfied but bent on more, losing sleep and never sated, never satisfied with any amount. So some people might go, listen, I, I, I get it. When I don't have anything, there's a place that I can learn to be content. But wait, how do I learn to be content when I have a lot? And Paul's looking at a group of people and he's saying, listen, I've learned this ability to actually be content in whatever situation, 410. He also says, I know how to deal with plenty. I know how to deal when I'm hungry. And he even says, I've learned this secret of being with and without And so the reality for you and I is this is something that has to be learned, but here's the reality. Situations are not the teacher. 
Because merely being in a state of being without, I've run into people who complain because they have nothing. And having an abundance, you can look all through the media at people who have a lot, and they are not happy still with having everything. So it's not just about going into an experience that actually changes me, but my experience is something that God can use whereby I can be changed. But there's something I have to learn in this, and that's this idea that Paul's sharing with people, that I've learned the secret of being content. He mentions that I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The idea behind that, how many of you in high school had like a secret group that you were a part of? You had maybe like a secret handshake? Hands? Nobody. All right. Fine. I was the only cool kid. I get it. Paul's using this idea of, he's saying, I've learned the secret. He doesn't use this word anywhere else, but this idea of secret, it's this secret that no one else knows. He's been initiated into this special group. Now, there were a group called the Gnostics. They're very different. They thought they had this special knowledge, but Paul comes in here and he goes, listen, I've learned this secret that no one else has, and it has to do with contentment. I've been initiated. I've learned this truth on how to face plenty and hunger and abundance and need. And so as we look at this, this is something that each and every one of us have to learn. But Paul says this is, he kind of has a hedge on information. He's been brought into this, this relationship where he has a secret on contentment. What is that secret? Paul in Philippians 4.13 says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What was the secret for Paul? What was the secret to endure having nothing? What was the secret of having plenty and still being content? What was the secret of being hungry? That idea of being brought low to Paul, it it wasn't just that I didn't have means. It was even that sometimes a person would be in a position and they would lose that position. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe you lost a ton of money and it actually makes you lose status. And, and, And Paul's saying, I can do that. I'm okay with it. I can be content in that situation. I don't need it. If I'm elevated to a different position, that's cool. I can do that too. And I can be quite content. But there's a secret that he says that not many of us actually find. That we need to pay attention to. That we too need to learn this. And it's contentment and it only comes through Christ. Well, I think there's misunderstanding with this passage. So I decided to go through hashtag Philippians 4.13. Just to kind of see what are people talking about with Philippians 4.13. And these are literal uh, littler ones. Uh, well, actually, yeah. So in 10 years, I see everything put on my goal sheet completed. Stay tuned. My ambition is out of this world, right? Hashtag Philippians 413. Rocking it, right? Got a few miles under my belt. Praise hands. Hashtag Philippians 413. We have praise the Lord. Ha- praise hands. There's no failure in you. Or class of 2020, there was a big graduation party coming up, and they're like, we can do this. Hashtag Philippians 4.13. And then, okay, so this was my last one. 
uh, I had to do this for my boys, but then they weren't here. Need a big W on Super Smash Bros, right? Hashtag Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But isn't this how many times when you hear people use Philippians 4.13, and I'm I'm, I'm not minimizing these are great things to celebrate and praise. I'm, I'm not minimizing that. But I look over and over. I could not find one that actually maybe has a full spectrum of what Paul's trying to get at with this. And my fear is this. Whoops, there we go. Yeah. My fear is this, that this is the misunderstanding that we have with the passage. Jesus gives me strength to crush it. Got a big job. Hashtag Philippians 4.13. I'm looking to marry a girl and ask her and pop the big question. Hashtag Philippians 4.13. Want the big promotion. Hashtag Philippians 4.13. But my fear is this. Church, you know what a diamond is. You know why it sparkles. It sparkles because there's multifacets to this diamond that allow light into it, that cast light everywhere. And I think what happens, unfortunately, with our misunderstanding of, of Philippians 4, uh, 4.13 is this. We go, man, oh God, you can give me strength to absolutely crush it. And we see that lens, and that verse does mean I can do that. I can do incredible things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't minimize that. We can do that. And this whole reality is, man, we should take steps of faith because of that. But this is the reality of what Paul's trying. We're missing a facet of this diamond that I don't see any mentions, any tweets about this. I can do all this through him who strengthens me. That's from the TNIV. Well, what is this? That would be a good question for us to answer. What is this that I can do? I can face plenty and I can be in hunger. I can have an abundance. I can be brought low. What Paul's intent is this. When crushing it or being crushed I have necessary strength and resolve through Christ to stand. I don't see many of those quotes. I just lost my child. This hurts incredibly. My only promise I'm leaning on is I can do this through Christ who strengthens me. I lost my job. I don't have a clue what I'm going to do but I'm leaning on the fact that God is good. He's able to work all things together for good. Hashtag Philippians 4.13. I can do this. See, what happens when we misunderstand the full spectrum of this passage, we make this about just succeeding in life. And then what happens is I come into a situation where all of a sudden I try to do something and I'm trying for that big job. I'm trying for maybe something else in a relationship. And what happens? It fails. And then what do I do? God, where were you? I thought you said I could do all things through you. What happened? I start to look and I start to question God and I go, maybe you're not as good as what you say you are. 
Or maybe I start looking and going, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm defective. Maybe I'm deficient. But maybe the reality of what I actually need to wrestle with in this moment is what Paul talked about. I don't need anything. Whether I get this or I don't, I'm okay. I'm content in Christ. I trust God implicitly with what he brings into my life, what he takes away, what he allows me to go through. I can trust him implicitly. And that then changes my posture before him. When things fall apart, I look and I go, God, my situation stinks. I'm relying on your goodness and your sovereignty. I need you. I need you desperately. And when things are going well, I don't go, man, man, I nailed it, right? I go, oh God, look how good you are. Just like Paul, I praise the Lord greatly. So we as Christians, we come to this idea of contentment and why do I take specific time for us to look at 10 through 13? It's this. Over and over, I run into young men, married men, single, women, kids, We're discontent. We're discontent. We're not able to be happy with what we have or don't have. We go into difficult situations in our life, and my comment is, I hope I can get out of this as quick as possible. Not realizing that maybe God has me here, and and his goodness hasn't changed. He's still just as good. He still loves each and every one of us just as much when we go through difficulty as when we go through blessing. And that then gives me courage to be in this situation. It even then gives me courage then when I face other people, when when I'm not constantly just in need and insufficient because I haven't found my sufficiency in Christ. I then come to other people and I need something from you. I need affirmation. I need approval. I need acceptance. I need something. Please give it to me. Please give me an applause. And it damages the very thing that we want. And it makes it elusive, the very thing that we're trying to grasp, community. We're trying to grasp this idea of fellowship, but it flees. Why? Because I'm coming to it insufficient without finding my sufficiency in Christ. And community will always be lacking in that sense. Because Christ is nowhere in it. We need to learn this lesson of contentment. We go back to the definition, a state of satisfaction flowing from accurately knowing Jesus Christ that enhances our relationships and that strengthens us with willingness and resolve to remain in whatever situations we face. Is that your heart this morning, Christian? Church, is that our heart this morning? Oh God, maybe I'm not there right now. But God, would you do this in my heart? Would you make me content? Would you help me to be, have a satisfaction in you? Would you help me to have a peace in you that enables me? Oh, then that it enhances the relationships that I have with other people that I come into contact with. 
Oh, God, then even, it even strengthens me and gives me a willingness that, God, if this is where you have me, I'm okay. I can, I can be in this situation and joyfully submit to you. I don't have to try to take control of things and fix it on my own. I trust you. Would we learn that lesson? I was trying to think through what is it that contentment helps for us as people? How does it help me? And I think the the, the easiest thing that I've come to is being content allows us to be present. See, so often I, I look through and we can read an Old Testament and look at, look at Israel's history and, and, and God leads them out of slavery in Egypt and then in the midst of a desert, they go, I wish I was back in slavery. Sometimes my past, I long for the past. I'm discontent where I am because I'm stuck in the past. It looked like it was so much better back there and I'm constantly trying to flee and go back to Egypt. I'm trying to go back into slavery and go on. It was so much better back then. And my heart needs to learn contentment. I'm discontent. I'm discontent where I am. I'm discontent where God has allowed me to be right now. I'm discontent. And I need to learn the secret of not just looking and dwelling on the past, but going, God, you're good right here. You've been faithful to lead me here. And some people are so caught up in the future they're dreaming about a possibility, and I love it. They're, they're thinking about future potentials that, that, that we need people like that to dream. But they're not able to engage right here. And how does that look? The workaholic dad that comes home and has a son that goes, man, I'd love to play catch with you. Not today, I'm busy. I'm trying to build my 401k for you in the future. It pushes him off. Or other things that come up in our life and we go, I'm too busy. Because I'm trying to do something down the road. I'm so forward thinking that I'm not present here. I'm not able to be here. It's a sign of discontentment. Or maybe I look at another person and and maybe I'm hypercritical. I'm hypercritical because I'm discontent in my own life and the struggles that I have in my own life that I then project that onto other people. And I look at at maybe my kids and go, you're not enough. Or my wife, you're not enough. Or my friends, you're not enough. You'd be more if you do this. And it comes back to contentment. I'm discontent and I project that onto you and leave you wanting and hurting because of my relationship with the Lord. I'm discontent with him. We have to learn contentment. We look at the different realms. Am I content so that I'm growing relationally? Am I content so I'm growing emotionally? Am I content so I'm growing spiritually? And Paul talks about that all through this section. I come back to the illustrations. There's a reason that I brought these things up here. Which one are you most like? Are you like the vacuum? Vacuums are pretty cool. Whoever designed this is pretty cool to be able to think through how to lower pressure in here so that air is pushed into a vacuum is pretty crazy. But let's be honest, its function is to suck. 
Is that your relationship with others? I suck things. I'm, I'm like a leech. I'm constantly pulling from you. I, there's, there's no reverse switch on this one. Maybe there's some that, there are some that do have it. But all that this one does is suck. Is that you? Yes, it does have purpose. It can clean things. And, and, and I'm not saying that it can't be without purpose and have use. But let's just be honest. It can't give. At least what it does give, you don't want it back. Trust me. I've, I've opened this thing up too many times to know that it goes everywhere. Are you like this cup? It's great. But man, it, let's be honest. After a while, if I kept drinking through the whole time I was talking, what would I be left with? Empty cup. Now, it's great because it can be refilled. But I think that's the, the motto of Christianity that I deplete maybe on a Sunday or all throughout the week. And then I come to a Sunday and I fill it back up. And then I deplete and then I fill it back up. And I deplete and fill it back up. And maybe I'm struggling with exhaustion in my life. Spiritually. Emotionally. And maybe it's because I've been living my life like this. Or am I more like this one over here? And actually specifically look at this barrel here in the middle. There's a top barrel that's spilling water into that middle barrel. And then it's spilling into another. And it's an endless stream that's just coming. And Paul has this view of his life and he's going, I am content. I'm satisfied in life. I'm okay. When I don't have anything and when I do, why? The secret of being content is I have a God who pours and gushes into my life. I would turn the hose up on this thing, but um, let's be honest, it'd be a mess. I have a God who spills into my life and then enables me to continuously spill into other people. And as, as I continue this relationship with them through the word, through prayer, and, and even through community and connecting with other people who point me to God, and, and, and he uses others, just like Paul illustrated, I, I praise God for you. You, you sent this gift to me. You gotta, God used you. And it's this illustration that they were poured into. And then we're able to pour into Paul. Would that be Cheyenne Berean? Would that be our heart here as a church? That we're poured into and we're spilling into other people. The grace from God. The love from God. The holiness from God that I trust God with where I am. Even in difficulty, I trust his wisdom implicitly and I can go, I trust you. I trust your plans. I'm okay where I am and I'll remain as long as you would have me. I'm willing to stay here. And I know that you're actually going to give me resolve to actually be here. Would that be the thing that then gives us feet to start doing mission and reaching out to people? I have my satisfaction in God and I'm ready to spill and, and, and gush out onto other people knowing he will resupply. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul teaching us that there was a secret that he had learned, and that secret was contentment. It was contentment of finding an ability in poverty, in abundance, in plenty, 
and lack to trust you implicitly. God, you're trustworthy. You've shown that over and over again. We can read through the Old Testament and see how you demonstrated your faithfulness over and over and over again. We can read biographies of missionaries. I think of, of a Corey Ten Boom who learned contentment in a place called a concentration camp. God, you can enable us to be in horrible places. And that to a world is shocking. How do you find contentment in this? How do you not grumble and complain in this? That is truly exceptional. That is how we can shine as lights for you. Help us, God. Give us grace to be content. In your name, amen.